Russian bots finally exposed by the mainstream media. The worst sports disaster in world history. And then we take a look at a curious case of a man who went missing and then reappeared. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day too. You know, this cold is really kicking my butt. And I thought that, and then I thought, where does that phrase come from? Why the butt? Why, like, why not man? That's really kicking my head in, or man, that's kicking my feet. Like, why the butt? Why is the butt what's getting kicked? Because the other person who's doing the kicking can really aim for any part of your body, and the butt actually isn't the most vulnerable. Like, it's all cushiony and stuff. So I wonder where that phrase came from. If only I had some sort of magical device program built on my computer that would allow me to enter in that phrase and find the origins, but alas, such a knowledge box does not exist. We got a lot of weird stories for you today. The first story is, I know I don't talk about politics on the show, It is the unwritten but often spoken rule, because just there's too much politics in the world. People need a place to escape. However, I can't let this story go by. We've heard about Russian bots over and over and over again in the news. And now, gentlemen and ladies, or ladies and gentlemen, however the phrase goes, we have uncovered the truth. The year, 2018. The month... This month, coincidentally, because it was just in the news. So they have this big robotics. They have this in Russia. They have this big electronics show, and the presenter was like, "It was for youth in technology. It's trying to get them young, trying to get those nerd hooks into those people young." And you might have already seen this in the news, so you know where this is going. But I thought this was absolutely hilarious. So there's this conference, and they brought out this robot. And he's walking, no cables, no, like, suspension system. He walks out on stage, and they're like, look, this is Boris, the robot. And the audience is like, oh, that's really cool. Now, the presenters had him walk out on stage and dance a little bit and talk, and the youth in the audience were like, oh, cool, it's a robot. And that was kind of it, but what happened was the Russian, the state Russian network, the state Russian network, it's a Russian 24, original, original title, presents this story, and they're like, look, Look at how advanced Russia is. We have this robot. And they're showing this clip. The robot comes out on stage. It's doing a little dance move. It's talking. It's walking around. And the television program was like, this is the state-of-the-art robot that we have invented here in Russia. And at this point, the guys who were running the show that was originally set up to entertain young kids were like, dude, it is only a matter of time before this blows up. People were like, that is one of the most advanced robots ever. A lot of the robots we have are like tread-based or they have four legs. But to have a robot that can walk on two legs with no additional wires or anything like that. And, spoiler alert, it was human-sized. It was a human-sized robot. is quite advanced. Like, Osimo was like three feet tall. He was quite slow. This robot was six feet tall and was moving. Spoiler alert, like a human. And so people were watching this on, in Russian television, scientists and just around the world, and they're like, where do, where are all the sensors on this robot? Like, where is all of its stuff to be able to tell where to go? Like, it's, it's oddly built. It looks like a human with no additional sensors. Other questions were, why 
weren't there any research papers being developed on this robot? Why did Boris just walk out on stage one day? Why didn't we see documentation going back saying we've worked on this sensor, we've worked on this sensor? But then another question came up. Someone goes, okay, maybe they put the sensor somewhere we can't see them. Maybe they kept the project under wraps. But why can you see a human neck (laughs) exposed when he turns his head? Yes, Boris the robot was not a robot. It was a man in a robot suit. And the presenters at the show never once said, we built this robot. This is something real. But it was when it was reported on Russian television, they said that this was a actual real android. And then photos surfaced of the robot without his head on, and it was human, obviously a human underneath. The company that made the robot costume were like, oh yeah, well, that's a standard robot costume. <laughs> oh, and then um, Russian24 took the clip offline. But by then, it's, you know, it's all on YouTube, so it's everywhere. So anyways, you can see this robot dancing. I get it. They were just trying to entertain kids. It would be the equivalent is if you had a show and Chuck E. Cheese walked on stage and was waving at the kids and playing the banjo, and then some news network was like, giant mutant rat terrifies children. It was that level of incompetence. And the Chuck E. Cheese people are like, it was just a dude in a suit. You didn't even ask us. It was a real rat running around. Is Chuck E. Cheese a rat or a mouse, actually? The implications if he's a rat are far grosser than if he's a mouse. So, Russian bots. I thought that story was hilarious. It was a mix-up, a little bit of mix-up, a little bit of national pride. Sometimes those two things collide. And you get an embarrassing YouTube video that'll be laughed about by dorks and geeks and podcasts for a long time. Second story we're going to cover... I thought it was interesting. It's actually very short as well. But here's the thing. I'm going to tell you this story. And other than certain specifics, I want to see if you can figure out what would be different today. If this story took place today, what would be changed? And there's going to be specifics about like construction material and the actual sporting event. But just the general outline. I want you to listen to it and think... That wouldn't happen today, or something different would happen today. So this is a story. There was a town, this is going way back in time, we're going back to 27 AD. Roman Empire rules most of southern Europe and other parts of the world. And there was a town called Fidne. 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 Uh, Fidne. So Fidne, that sounds more... Not American. Fidne was this town, and it was situated in the Roman Empire. Now, what happened was, there was this time period where... If the editing sounds weird on this episode, too, it's because I'm sneezing every five minutes, <clears throat> and my voice changes. There, was, Emperor Tiberius said, you know what, dudes? No more gladiator games. I just don't like them. They're banned from the Empire. And everyone's like, aww. But in 27 AD, for whatever reason, Tiberius goes, you know what, I think, I think we need, I think we need some gladiator games. And everyone's like, oh, oh, oh. So at this point, there was a entrepreneur slash crook named Attili, Attilius. His name is Attilius. And he's like, okay, they want games. I'm going to build an amazing coliseum and I'm going to make a ton of money. I'll be the first Colosseum up, other than the Colosseum. And we're just going to pack them. We're going to pack them in, boys. We're going to get some of that sweet, sweet Lyra. 
So, or is it Lyra? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So he says, let's build this quickly. And we got to build it cheap because we've got to build it quickly. So he builds this massive coliseum in Fidene out of wood, which that's not unheard of back then, but they didn't really scope out the land. They just started building it. The land itself was uneven. And due to not the greatest materials and not the greatest craftsmanship, because he's trying to save that money, it's it's not the safest place in the world. So they, But they do finish it. And he's like, come on, come all to the Gladiator Games. That's all the marketing that we do in this time. We just yell on a street corner. That's it. I wonder what marketing was back then. I guess it was probably had to all be viral marketing, word of mouth. What else are you going to do? You didn't have a printing press. I don't even know if they had paper. Didn't they just have scrolls? That'd be really expensive to to advertise an event in ancient Rome. Because you pretty much just get a bunch of dudes who are like, Hey, were you at the Battle of Marathon? They're like, yeah, sure. And he's like, okay, I need you to run all around the Roman Empire telling people to come to my gladiator games. Like, what are you going to do? Throw, like, make a bunch of eagles fly around dropping stuff? It would have to be word of mouth. How did you advertise anything back then? There were merchants. I mean, I guess if there was a merchant, you'd be walking down the street and someone would be like, glass bottles, glass bottles, and then you'd go buy a glass bottle. But if you were going to have a gladiator game in a certain town on a certain day, how would you get people... You're like getting... You're like interrupting fortune telling. Like people are throwing chicken bones and it's like, come to Atelius. Come to my famous casino. Not casino. It spells like like gladiator games Thursday night. Only in Fidene. But anyways, he marketed it somehow. And I know that because it said in an article. That's why I was trying to figure out, well, how did he market stuff? They get it. The place is packed. Because they're like, finally, gladiator games are back. I've always wanted to see people get chopped up. And so the, the Coliseum is packed full of people. And the games start. And there's like... And they're like, oh, no. It's not a cat. It's not a giant cat under the Coliseum. That's supposed to be supposed to be the sound of the wood creaking. I know that sounded like a, a bunch of tigers. He's like, that's where I put my tigers. He, he was cutting costs so much. He's like, I'll just put the tigers underneath the stands. Anyways, so let me, no special effects. The place blows up. It just falls apart. The whole Coliseum collapses. It, it was packed full of people. And we know it was packed full of people because the death toll is anywhere. The death toll. People who actually died, not including the people who were injured or the people who, who saw any of it. 10 to 50,000 people. And even at 10,000 people, it's the worst sports disaster of all time. There's never been that amount of people kill, killed at a sports game ever in history. 10,000 people minimum died during this. Another historian ramped it up to 50,000. Some people say oh, probably 10,000 and another 40,000 injured, but it, they're just collapsed. People begin to leave their homes to save the people that they could. You had rescue workers all over the place throwing stuff around. The emperor himself came came to Fidene to assist in the recovery effort. Not like he was like picking up boulders and stuff, but to help maintain order and kind of be there as a presence in the city maybe he was picking up boulders i don't know but he was there to assist in the recovery effort and what happened afterwards was that the roman government said okay this can never happen again ever happen again so we're gonna make some new laws one of the laws was that you couldn't build a coliseum 
unless you were rich. Like you had to have a certain amount of money on you before you could build a structure that big. They said, we only want people who, so it's not a get rich quick scheme. You already have money, then you can build a coliseum. They also made it a law that all coliseums had to be, or amphitheaters, but they had to be built on a solid, structurally sound foundation because he was just basically building it wherever he could. And it had to be inspected and certified for safety. Attilius himself was banished. And based on the terminology, some people think he was kicked out of Rome. Other people think he was banished in the sense that he can no longer hold, do any sort of business like that. He can. He was banished from that, the business of basically entertainment or gladiatory games and so on and so forth. Now, I said in the beginning, could you name a part of that story outside of certain specifics that wouldn't happen today? 27 AD is when that story took place. And it is almost to a point exactly what would happen today. It was mind-boggling. When I was reading the story, I kind of stumbled across it somewhere. And I'm reading it and I'm thinking, this is this is everything. I could it's so funny because I think we have an idea that like the past people were more like regal or more barbaric or more like thoughtful or more savage or whatever. Depending on the region, depending on how you think about it. But this story, I could have changed specifics about this and the date and you would have thought it took place in 1980 scotland or 2018 australia the a guy wants to get rich quick he builds something really really cheap it injures or kills a bunch of people and new legislation is put forth so that never happens again that story happens all the time it's roller coasters it's swimming pools it's all sorts of stuff other sports arenas and it's funny because i'm reading it and i'm like picturing it and it's funny to think that like the roman senate was probably like getting old-timey phone calls like people are picking up seashells and they're like and the senate's like and the senate's like if if i get one more seashell call about how the senate needs to legislate coliseums i'm gonna jump off a bridge but we haven't invented those yet so i'm going to i'm gonna jump off this road and just roll around in the dirt because I know they invented road. So it's interesting because humans don't change. I, yesterday's episode about the Paleolithic deep state, and I was talking about how when the Paleolithic era, the wisest of the people were thinking, let's try to maintain our way of life. Let's try to keep humanity strong. And I said, people probably think I'm giving them too much credit, but they were basically humans at that point. This is the, really bears into that point where... These guys, everyone, every character in this story still exists today. You have the senators who are like, damn it, we got to legislate this stuff. You have the greedy person. You have the emperor who is like, has to make a, I don't want to say make a show, but he has to come out to the disaster area. Like presidents will go to hurricanes and stuff like that. Even though he had nothing to do with it, either he was there for a moral reason or he was there for a publicity reason. You have just the average people who wanted to go about their day who fell prey to someone's greed. And then you have the people who ran out of their houses and just were like going about their day and they saw this horrible disaster. Can you imagine going to a disaster scene that had 10,000 casualties? Not to mention the giant cat living underneath the Colosseum. I just think it's an interesting story because it shows how little humans change despite the fact that our... The, the specifics have changed for humanity throughout the years, but humanity themselves, they act in the same ways. This story could have played out 
any time between 27 AD and today, and it would have you would see those same elements. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Okay, we're gonna go ahead and move on to our next story. Our last story, actually. I don't like time. Like I don't say I want to say I don't like time warps, but time warps and portals and stuff like that. Portals to other dimension always scare me because you think that it's they're they're probably one of the most mundane. Fordian weird things that can happen like Bigfoot is just like this big dude who hangs out in the woods people are looking for him all the time but he's kind of contained to certain areas you don't want to see a ghost don't go to a haunted house uh you don't want a succubus to come in your house don't summon one stuff stuff like that but portals are creepy because you just don't know where they're going to pop up and assuming they exist in the first place but the idea of like walking through the woods or walking to school or something and then all of a sudden warp you just disappear. And then no one ever knows what happened to you. People are like, oh, whatever happened to Jason Carpenter? His podcast just ended that day. And they're like, well, he did rack up quite the enemy list in 125 episodes. But I'm and I'm really just floating around in this this weirdo dimension. But, you know, most people who go missing are found dead or they're runaways or they're not found out they're they're returned home they're just like hey mom hey dad yeah i was just over at my boyfriend's house like that's the majority of missing person cases but there are the cases where people just go missing and then for the longest time people go well you know we don't know what happened to them and for most of those cases also i'm sure they're dead we just never find them or they're spirited away to some other country or whatever but we have this interesting story this story takes place in the year 1978, and we're in the Lake Michigan area. Now, there has been talk about the Lake Michigan Triangle or the Great Lakes Triangle, how these are areas of abnormal disappearances with boats and airplanes and people and stuff like that. I have a real problem with those designations because I could draw a triangle over any geographical area with high traffic and pick out 10 stories. It's super easy to do. And then go look at 10 people went missing in the past 30 years. Isn't that weird? And you're like, wait, what? But if I tell those stories right, I can make it sound weird. Really, I'm just, I could draw a triangle over from Hood River to Portland to, I don't know, somewhere else here, Gresham. And I'm sure I'll have at least 10 bizarre disappearances. So there was a bunch of women who went actually missing up here in Hood River like a summer or two ago. It wasn't just women, they were hikers. And they were, and I was like, oh, serial killer. And people are like, no, people disappear from here all the time because they go on hiking trails and disappear. And I was like, I don't know. That was actually before the podcast. But um, I don't, I think they found two of their bodies. One of them was weird. One of them jumped in the river or something like that. But anyways, the point being is that you can take any geographical area and draw lines around it and say, there's weird stuff in here. So I really dismiss the idea. I like the idea of the Bermuda Triangle just because it's longevity. I don't really give it much credence as a real phenomenon because boats and planes, it's one of the most highly trafficked areas in the Western Pacific Ocean. That's what I'm trying to say. So, but whatever. But these new ideas, they're like, oh, look at this triangle. I don't give much credence to it. There is an, oh, you know what? I'm not even going to do the episode. Here, hold on a second. This was going to be this. I'm going to say this real quick. I was going to make it its own segment. It's pretty much falls into what I've just been saying. This um, particular segment of the man. I know it's getting confusing now. Okay, let me back up. So Sean on YouTube sent me a story about a man eating stone. A stone that eats people. And I looked into it and it was 
a like this guy writes kind of this non-fiction fiction kind of legends of an area and he's the only person who's ever stated that there's a stone that eats people and the stone that eats people it's in vermont he's like maybe a stone's eating them what and what he's referring to is in vermont there's a thing called the bennington triangle it's a triangle that's full of missing people people go missing here all the time listen to this craziness from 1945 to 1950 Six people went missing in the wilderness. So, I mean, like, I could, that that's nothing. Like, I they'll always draw, and, and thanks, Sean, for the recommendation. Like, I'm not saying that it was a bad story or anything, but I, I couldn't really feel anything more in that. Some of the disappearances were weird, like it could have been a killer, but it doesn't mean, one of the stories was a kid was sitting in his car and the mom went to go to the grocery store, and when she came back, the kid was missing. They never found him. How did a rock eat him? Like, how is this author saying that maybe rocks are eating people when one of the missing people is a kid in a car? Was he listening to rock music and it came out of the speakers? So, Bennington Triangle, the Great Lakes Triangle, the Michigan Triangle, all that stuff. I, like, I don't really give it any credence. But the reason why I'm talking about it is because this particular, and again, thanks, Sean, for the man-eating stone story. The reason why I'm talking about all of the triangle stuff is because people have tried to take the actual real-life story of Stephen Kubaki and and fit it into this weird mystical stuff. Yeah, a couple boats and planes have gone missing in Lake Michigan. It's a giant lake. Basically a sea. Stuff's gonna sink. But anyway, so, Steve Kubaki. It's February. It's 1978. Lake Michigan. He says, hey mom, hey dad, he's an adult, but (laughs) whatever. Hey mom, hey dad, I'm going to go skiing. I'm going to go ski in the area of Lake Michigan. It's all frozen. And they're like, okay, son, see you later. So he goes out to the lake. Now he doesn't come home. And first people are worried, but then more time passes and they're like, well, that's weird. Stephen's not someone who's just going to disappear. So they begin searching for him. They find his footprints leading up to a frozen lake. They mysteriously stop. Now, my first, and I could be wrong on this, but my first idea when I read that sentence was, can you leave footprints on ice? (laughs) Like, if you're walking on the lake, if they lead up to the lake and he was going to walk across the lake, do you leave footprints on ice? How does snow sit on on an ice lake? I don't know. But anyway, so his footprints led up to that. They found, I think it was his jacket by the side of the lake. And then, oddly enough, when they were continuing searching for him, when they doubled back to that area, they found his backpack as well. I'm always also a little iffy on that type of stuff, because it means either someone set the backpack there, what's more likely was the backpack was covered up by the snow or whatever. But anyway, so that was the story. Fifteen months later, there is a knock on the Kubaki family door. They open it up, and there's Stephen. And Stephen, this is a weird story. And you could read into it a lot of different ways. But Stephen basically tells his family, he goes, I don't know what happened to me for the last 15 months. No idea. He goes, all I know was that I just woke up 40 miles from my home, where I'm at right now, mother, father. You recognize me, right? They're like, yeah, yeah, Stephen, quit being a weirdo and just tell us the story. And he goes, okay, sorry. He goes, the, what I what I remembered was I woke up 40 miles from this home. I was wearing clothes that weren't mine. I had never owned these clothes before. And I was carrying a satchel, which is not mine. And the satchel was full of maps. But I'm home. 
And the field he ended up in that was 40 miles from his family's home was 700 miles from Lake Michigan. And that's it. He has refused to give comment on this story. He doesn't talk about it at all. He's actually a practicing psychologist in Seattle now. He's a real person. He really did go missing all that stuff. And he doesn't talk about it. You answer no questions. He says, I don't remember. I don't remember. Now, let's unpack that for a bit. One, people go missing on purpose all the time. They're called runaways. And it's that's possible. And then he may have had a change of heart and decided to come back home for whatever reason. Two, he could have gone through some sort of weird portal and have no memory of what happened. And just woke up in the field and be like, what? Where am I? Whose clothes are these? What's the satchel? Maps! Like, he could have had that progression of realizations. But there's also the possibility that he disappeared and does remember what he saw. But he knew that, one, if he told anyone, they'd think he was crazy, think he was making it up. And two, if he told anyone for the rest of his life, people would be asking him, so how did the gnomes taste? So what Pinkleberry was the best one to write on in your magical adventure in that other dimension? Like, he could have just been like, you know what? It was a horrible place. I mean, it was full of magic and whimsy and wonder, but I don't want to talk about it the rest of my life. I'm just going to tell people I forgot and move on. Quite odd. And you know what's interesting, too, is that I'm surprised. Every article I read kind of had the same information, which makes me a little suspicious about the story overall. But you would think if someone went missing and they had this search effort for him, generally they bill the family if the person ran away. Like, if you went missing, and then it turns out because of your own negligence, you went missing or you were just running away, they'll sometimes bill the family, and that didn't happen in this case. But who knows? It was funny because the the thing that intrigues, I think, everybody when you hear that story is, like, maps? What are the maps? Like, what? Maps of what? And so I read it, and it just said he had a satchel full of maps. And I was like, I was thinking, so are they like magical maps? Like, were they showing him maps to get out of the fairy realm? Was it just maps of local, like, tourist traps? And then I read another article, and it said he he had a satchel full of strange maps. And I go, that is, you're, you're making that part up. You added that word in. Because if they were strange maps, you would definitely tell us why they were strange or what was strange about them. They're just adding to the mystery. Strange maps. Whatever, dude. Like, don't add stuff. Don't make stuff up. The story's weird enough. You don't have to add in strange maps. Because what? What was strange about them? Anyways. So, who knows? Who knows if the story's real? The story could be totally made up. He could have made it up. It could be an internet legend. And the guy really exists. That's why he doesn't want to talk about it. He's like, Ugh. but let's assume that it's real for a second. Does he still have those maps? Where do those maps lead? Has he ever gone back to that area? Does he know what happens to missing people? And the scariest thing of all is that if he did go to a place of magic and wonder and whimsy, he probably would talk about it. But if you experienced some of the worst torment of your life, it was like just an active war zone of hate and violence, you'd want to forget about it too. So, did Steve Kubecki disappear? Was he, one of, was he one of the lucky ones who reappeared back into our reality? Only he knows the answer. But, I still stand by my original statement that portals are scary. Maps are not. 
Dead Rabbit Radio. I wonder what type of clothes he had. I wonder if he had like snazzier clothes, like nicer clothes. He's like, man, I need to go to the portal more often. It's like a shop in a mall. It's like next to 17 again. What's no, no, no. It's next to Forever 21 and the Taco Bell food court. It's like the portal. It's just like, and you walk in, you come back out with someone else's clothes and a satchel full of maps. If I was a fashion designer, I would add satchels of maps to all of my clothes next season. DeadRabbitRadioGmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at Facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at Jason O'Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.